1: The following podcast contains explicit language.
0: Hi, I'm Stefan Fatsis, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of October 1st, 2018. On this week's show, Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer will join us to talk about Major League Baseball's playoffs, including which teams might bullpen to the World Series. I'm very excited about bullpen becoming a verb. We'll also talk about the coach of a two and two NFL team, Bill Belichick of the new England Patriots who emerged from his usual cone of silence for a thoughtful interview with our guest, Sally Jenkins of the Washington post. And finally we'll discuss the biggest story in sports right now. We always do the big stories and that would be gritty the new nightmare fuel mascot of the Philadelphia Flyers. Jason Gay of the Wall Street Journal will share his thoughts about the gritty phenomenon. Josh Levine, Slate's editorial director and the author of the 2005 post, Rappers and Bloggers Separated at Birth! Exclamation point. He's off this week. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio is former Hang Up and Listen intern and current Deadspin staff writer, Laura Wagner. Welcome back to the show, Laura.
2: Thank you. Wow. I need to step up my rappers and bloggers separated at birth. Yeah. Wow.
0: I think it's time. It's been 13 years. Someone should do (laughs) a revival of that blog post. Yeah. Are you okay with us still referring to you as Hang Up and Listen? I'm honored. Honored. At this point, really, it's just reflected glory (laughs) on us. So it's all good. There are two tiebreaker games in the National League. The Cubs hosting the Brewers and the Rockies at the Dodgers. All four have made the playoffs, but because they tied for their divisions, they need to play again to see who wins the division and who plays in the wild card games. But we will not talk about those games because we are recording this podcast before they are played on Monday afternoon. But there's plenty more baseball to discuss with Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Hi, Ben.
3: Hi. October baseball. Exciting. Hey, I live October. for this, it is as October. Derek Cheater used to say on those broadcasts, 10 times a game.
0: <laughs> All right. I looked on your website's preseason rankings. Seven of the Ringers' original top 10 made the playoffs, which is pretty good. On the other hand, the Cubs and the Dodgers were supposed to be locks, and they ended up tied, as I just mentioned, for their division title. So was this season not as inevitable as it seemed at the beginning, or is what's happened not really a huge surprise?
3: I think it has been a surprise and no one was expecting any surprises this year. That was kind of the narrative coming into this regular season was that everything was sewn up already. We don't even need to watch this season. Let's just skip to the playoffs because you had these seven or so super teams that were just bringing back all their great players from last year. And supposedly, according to various columnists in the spring, hope and faith was dead across baseball and there was no suspense anywhere. And as usually happens, life finds a way and randomness Road to the rescue, and baseball ended up weird as it almost always does. And we had certainly some teams that were just as good as advertised, but we also had the Nationals not make the playoffs at all. Right. We have division races coming down to the final day of the season, an extra day of the season for the first time ever. We have the A's winning a wild card. No one predicted these things. So a lot of it really does come down to weird, wacky run differential hijinks where teams that probably weren't as good as the teams that finished tied with them or behind them actually ended up on top. And that will happen even over a 162 game or in this case, 163 game schedule.
2: Yeah, so the A's, the Ringer had them at 22nd between the White Sox, who finished 62 and 100, and the Pirates, who finished 82 and 79. How did they get back to the playoffs?
3: Well, I think there's always a temptation to look for some money ball thing that they did because it's the A's. And if you squint, you can sort of see one. They lead the major leagues in fly ball rate for their hitters. And that's an advantageous thing at this period in baseball because the ball is still flying pretty well and there are a lot of homers hit. So if you get the ball in the air, that's a good thing. And the A's have one of the best offenses in baseball this year. So you can give them credit for anticipating that or lucking into that kind of lineup. But I A lot of this really did come down to something that you wouldn't have predicted at the start of the season, which is that the A's have one of the best bullpens ever, and their starting rotation, which was seen as not really a strength, but kind of competent coming into the year, most of it was just hurt or ineffective. And so they ended up picking up guys like Trevor Cahill and Brett Anderson and Edwin Jackson, people who no one knew was still in baseball for the most part. And those guys strung together really great stretches and were good enough to get them there. And for the most part, they just really rode this bullpen down the stretch. And that was enough.
0: And isn't that sort of Billy Bean-ish, you know, finding players who are underperforming who suddenly will perform maybe in a different role. And that role (laughs) is this notion of bullpenning that Mm -hmm. and it looks like the A's are going to open with reliever Liam Hendricks. He's going to be their opener. Um, this guy was designated for assignment in June. He hasn't given up a run the last eight times he has opened, meaning he's he's going to pitch an inning starting. Um, and the A's have tinkered with the order of all of these pitchers. You know, Hendricks will go one. A starter might come in and go two. Then a bunch of relievers can go one. Susan Slusser of the uh, San Francisco Chronicle Says that the A's uh, are going to have eleven pitchers on the wild card roster, and they all could be relievers.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is something that's sort of been the hip thing for sabermetric writers to propose for years. That whenever there was a, an elimination game, people would say, "Just bullpen it. Just put your best relievers in to start the game, and just." kind of mix and match from there. And we wrote those blog posts every year and no one ever listened and no one did those things. And it was a great source of content that I guess now is gone because teams are actually doing that thing. And they've been doing it throughout the year. It's not just a wild card game thing this is the year that that strategy really took off. And we've seen starting pitchers' usage decline for years and years. I mean, going back to the beginning of baseball for the most part. But this year, starting pitchers threw fewer than 60% of the innings in baseball, which is a new all-time low. We keep setting an all-time low every year. And the roles are really just losing their distinction. Starter, reliever, it's all sort of the same. It's just guys who get innings and varying levels of innings. And I wrote earlier this year that the Ace had tried something like this under Tony La Russa in 1993, 25 years ago, and it lasted about a week because it was just too soon and no one was ready for this and who's going to get the win? Win meant everything. And this is a, a way that you can deprive starting pitchers of wins. So that was not the time. This is the time.
2: One issue with this, as uh, Granke pointed out, was that he told Bleacher Report, if you do it this way, then you'll never end up paying any pitcher what he's worth because you're not going to have guys starting. You're not going to have guys throwing innings. You keep shuffling guys in and out constantly so nobody will ever get paid.
3: Yeah. And I think that's a a valid concern and something we should keep in mind. But I think it's almost too soon to say whether that will turn out to be the case. For instance, the Rays have a guy, Ryan Yarborough, who was kind of the the bulk guy, as they call it, the guy who comes in after the opener. And you'd think that maybe he would get fewer wins as a result, but he ended up going 16-6. and And so the wins still go to someone. It's just maybe not the same person. And if every team is doing this, then maybe you just end up with a different pay structure for pitchers where right. you just kind of pay guys appropriately given how many innings they pitch. And you know, the the hurdle is that there's this arbitration system in baseball that some players are eligible for every year. And traditionally it's been kind of these old school stats like wins and saves that gets guys paid. And so this could come back to bite some people, but I think the revolution in pitcher usage here and, and bullpen usage. And it's not just the opener. It's, you know, position players pitching more often than they ever have just because you do what works and, and what kind of gets you the best chance to win the game without burning your other useful pitchers. And so as we've seen a revolution in how teams use their pitchers, maybe we will see a corresponding one in how they pay their pitchers.
0: Uh, the top three teams in wins in Major League Baseball are all in the American League, the Boston Red Sox, the Houston Astros, the New York Yankees. The Yankees won 100 games. They have to play in a one-game wildcard playoff. That blows. Um, <laughs> and I know we've talked about structure and about letting everyone be in the playoffs. Your your friend Sam Miller wrote a piece for ESPN that we, we talked about on the show about having a system where everybody makes the playoffs um, and a sort of elaborate tournament structure over the last month of the season. Um, but, yeah, enough with divisions. I mean I'm <laughs> sick of them.
3: If you're looking for sympathy points for your Yankees, I'm sure you're not garnering many from <laughs> your audience right now, but no. There is a lot of weirdness that goes on every year just because of unbalanced schedules and division structures. I mean, this year in the NL, the team with the worst record or winning percentage among the playoff teams, the Braves, they're the only team that just gets a buy into the division series without having to play one of these, you know, game 163s or wildcard games, which is just kind of a weird quirk of how this season worked out. So, I think if we get expansion down the road, which is something I've talked to you about on this podcast before, mm-hmm. then maybe we will see a restructuring where we'll have a more fair and balanced you know structure of of teams and divisions or no divisions at all but for now you do end up with these strange sort of situations but the Yankees are another team that like the A's are kind of set up to do the bullpen thing because yeah. they have a dominant bullpen too and they demonstrated that last year in the wild card game against the Twins sort of inadvertently their starter Luis Severino got one out before he was pulled and then they bullpen the rest of the game and it got them to the division series so yeah. that can work when you build these these super pens that teams are trying to construct today
0: let's talk quickly about uh yelich he actually as we speak has a chance to win the triple crown in the national league he plays for the milwaukee brewers for those who don't know and the brewers who fell a game short of the playoffs last year acquired yelich in the offseason as part of the uh the, the 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 marlins fire sale um they you know they ended up trading what a top prospect and a two more top 10 prospects for Christian Yelich. And this guy's really good. And I don't know that people are aware of just how good he is.
3: Yeah, no one really expected Jelic to be the guy who would be the best MVP candidate among the, the players the Marlins fire sold because John Carlos Stanton was part of that crew too. But Yelich has been fantastic. And it's funny because he's been a good player for a while now, but he's also been a ground ball hitter. And so we've all been thinking, well, if he could just get more balls in the air, he'd hit a bunch more homers and he'd be great. And he has hit a bunch more homers and he's been great, but he's still sort of a ground ball hitter. He has the same launch angle as. As he did last year. And what's weird is that almost exactly half of the fly balls that he has hit in the second half of the season have turned into home runs, which is weird and probably unsustainable, but has come at the perfect time for the Brewers. And I think the Brewers are really kind of the model franchise in a way at this point. We've all been looking at the Astros and the Cubs as the team that figured out how to win. You know, you tear it down, you get bad, and then you get good again the Brewers got good again without ever really getting bad. They never did the fire sale. They never tanked. They just picked up a, a lot of players, astute transactions. And this winter, when a lot of teams were sort of sitting on their money and, and not making moves, they went out and they got Yelich and they got Lorenzo Cain, two MVP caliber players. So I, I think they deserve to be celebrated.
2: Uh, ben, I'm an Orioles fan, but despite oh, that, I'm, I'm going to ask you. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to ask you about the Orioles. Our... Um, are they one of the worst teams ever? I mean, Chris Davis completely forgot how to hit the ball before he was mercifully benched. He finished with 168, 243, 296. Um, the, the,
0: yeah. That is a <laughs> slash line. But also, <laughs> but also
2: how, how why are they so bad? I mean, they were projected to be Bad, but I think Fangraphs had them losing ninety three games, so they mm-hmm. lost like twenty games more than that. What what's what it was missed when when looking at the Orioles?
3: Yeah, I don't think anyone expected them to be this completely incompetent, and for Davis to finish I think with the sixth lowest wins above replacement total ever for a position player. Uh, you know, some of the stat sites set forty eight wins as replacement level. That's like what a team of replacement players would do, and the Orioles won forty seven games, <laughs> so they are sort of. A a a sub-replacement level team, almost. Although, you know, I think part of it is the division and the competition, right? They had to play the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Rays a bunch of times. So that hurts. And they got a little unlucky, I think, with their distribution of runs. And of course, they finally accepted that they weren't a contending team and they traded Manny Machado and Jonathan Scope and some of their good players. So I think it's all of those things wrapped up together. But they really reached depths that we haven't seen since the 2003 Tigers, and they ended up finishing 61 games behind the Red Sox, which <laughs> which exceeds the 1962 Mets 60-and-a-half-game division deficit. Wow. It is Oh, I like that, it is the, That's lovely. the biggest division deficit, I believe, since 1942, which is just this confluence of a historically good team and a historically terrible team, which has been fun for us to track, I think, all season long.
0: Uh, speaking of, uh, of historically... Terrible and historically good, all at the same time. Let's talk a little bit about Jacob Degrom before we let you go. Um, he finished the year with a ten and nine record. Um, his ERA is under two. He should win the Cy Young Award, but his his season was just, I mean, crazy. Yeah, he went twenty nine straight starts without allowing three runs or fewer. That ties Jake Arrieta's uh, having done that in twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen for the Cubs. During that stretch, Jack Bear points out on Yahoo, the Cubs went twenty-seven and two. The Mets went Went eleven and eighteen. I mean, that's like that's not just run production. That's also like historically crazily bad.
3: Yeah, I mean, if you look at Jacob Degrom's performance in losses and in no decisions, he was like one of the best pitchers in baseball, even in those games. So it wasn't his responsibility. It was the Mets not producing for him. And one of my favorite fun facts of the season, sort of wonky, but he ended up as the second qualified pitcher ever to finish with a higher wins above replacement total than his wins total which is really really (laughs) hard to do because if you're you know a good pitcher you're gonna rack up wins above replacement like he ended up with more than 10 wins above replacement and yet he ended up with 10 wins it's almost impossible to do that and it really comes down to terrible timing and the Mets, it's just the metziest thing that could possibly have happened. And he will almost certainly, I think, win the Cy Young Award, despite his record. And I think that's sort of a a sign of progress in a way. I mean, when Felix Hernandez won the award a few years ago with a 13 and 12 record, it Mm -hmm. was looked on as heresy. And now DeGrom is going to lower that limbo bar, I believe. And, you know, it's partly because I think we all realize now that team performance has more to do with your win loss record than player performance, and also just because, you know, starters are not factoring into decisions as much these days because of the reasons that we talked about.
0: In the American League, I am rooting for Blake Snell mm-hmm. of the Tampa Rays to win for one reason, to win the Cy Young Award. He would be the first single-digit pitcher to win the Cy Young Award, and I'm very excited <laughs> about that. Blake Snell wears number four.
3: So you must have been rooting against DeGrom to get that 10th win. Poor DeGrom. Yeah.
0: Ben Lindbergh writes about baseball for the ringer. He's also the co-author with Sam Miller of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Ben, thanks for coming on
3: the show. My pleasure. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
0: Before we get to our interview with Sally Jenkins about Bill Belichick, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Sally is going to stick around, and we're going to discuss some new horrific revelations about the treatment of players at the University of Maryland in their football program under Coach DJ Durkin. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. For months now, the 66-year-old New England Patriots head coach Bill Belichick, his 41-year-old quarterback Tom Brady, and their boss, owner Robert Kraft, have been at the center of a public psychodrama about their relationship and the future of the team. Belichick has stayed on the sidelines where he is happiest, while others have reported rumors and conducted the tea leaf analysis about the relationship of these three men. And when he has emerged, as he did last week in a 3,500 word profile in the Washington Post, it's to talk about his core axioms and fundamentals. Here to help us better understand Belichick is the author of that piece, columnist Sally Jenkins. Sally, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Sally, I want to ask you about the circumstances of your interview with Belichick. You write that uh, now would have been a good time for him to talk. The Super Bowl loss reports of friction with Brady and Kraft, the sluggish start to the season before Sunday, this Sunday. You quote him saying, I'm good, like he doesn't care in the familiar way that Belichick doesn't care, but he does agree to talk to you and he chatters the way people who are close to him know that he can chatter when he wants to. Why do you think Belichick agreed to to talk with you,
4: well, I think he's a very calculated coach who probably had a message he wanted to get across to somebody, uh, whether it's his players or whether it's uh, you know the New England fan community. Uh, I, I think he probably the Malcolm Butler stuff. I'm guessing was a little harder on him than he might be willing to admit in public. That's, that's uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not, just not surmising. Playing, yeah. Not playing
0: Malcolm Butler in the Super Bowl and getting second second guessed about that.
4: Correct, and and. uh, you know, so and but I also think that uh, I had written quite a lot about the Patriots during their playoff run last year, and uh, I, you know, I I assuming he read some of that stuff or he wouldn't have agreed to call me back. Um, you know, I I actually really like covering the Patriots. I, you know, I I feel like they're you know our era's Miami Dolphins, and and so I like writing about them and covering them because I like examining. What's prob- probably the most historical franchise we'll get to cover. Uh, so, anyway, uh, so I really don't know. I'll, all I know is that Belichick always has a pretty good reason uh, for doing what he does. He doesn't do it just to be nice.
2: Sally, um, I noticed that the in the story you said that the intermediary said that he didn't want to quote make a headline when when they told you that. How, what did what did you understand that to mean?
4: Uh, that you know he wasn't going to talk about Malcolm Butler or Tom Brady is how I took it. Um, and of course my immediate response was, well, look, when Bill Belichick talks to anybody, it's pretty much of a headline, you know, that's pretty unavoidable. Right. Uh, but, um, You know, basically, but that's what I understood it to mean. I understood it to mean that he didn't want to do a deep dive into the controversies with Tom Brady or Malcolm Butler, that he would talk in generalities, but not specifics.
0: And what I thought was interesting is that how you explain in the story that when Belichick does talk, or at least lately, it's... In these sort of unusual places, he the only media he did in the off season you write, was a story in Nantucket magazine. I guess he has a he has a house on Nantucket. He did a friendly segment on CNBC where he was shown playing with his dog. But when he does these things, there's clearly a motive, because as you write, Belichick's intellect is unsurpassed in the nfl his preparation the detail the rigor with which he approaches every conversation i was particularly interested in how you describe um how every one of his conversations seems to have some motivation
4: so when he did nantucket magazine he was promoting uh, a charitable event Mm -hmm. right he uh he basically had a little bit of good that he wanted to do there. And so he posed for the cover of Nantucket magazine when he does CNBC. It's always with Susie Welch, uh, a friend of his, and it's always uh, something. The, 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 the wife
0: of former GE chairman, yes, Jack Welch,
4: who he has, a, I think, a longstanding friendship with. Right. And so uh, obviously she's a, a very trusted, you know, member of the CNBC Uh, You know, business network. And so, uh, uh, and in that case, he actually did the interview with her in a uh, famous uh, bar in Annapolis uh, that um, gives a lot of support to uh, soldiers overseas or soldiers coming home from overseas. And uh, so he wanted to help promote that restaurant and promote the cause that the restaurant Uh, Supports And so, as I say, there's always a little something that he's trying to get done in those conversations. And he he tends to pick, as you say, yeah, pretty subtle and unusual um, venues. You know, I'm probably more mainstream media, sports media than he usually uh, does. Although I will say this, I do think Bill Belichick talks to a lot of NFL reporters off the record. Uh, uh, pretty strictly off the record. That's my sense from just knowing, you know, the people in our profession.
0: You know, the, the public perception of Belichick, the fan perception of Belichick is grumpy old man, you know, these hilarious news conferences where he doesn't reveal anything. And I think your interpretation of that is so spot on that I have this sort of grudging respect for the way Belichick comports himself. And you write that, his silence signifies his unwavering absorption in task and defiance in the face of media fragmentation and ever multiplying platforms offering so much noise and myriad distraction, which is perhaps worth congratulating as a kind of integrity.
4: Yeah, I believe that. I mean, I, I actually think that I, I respect the way, believe it or not, I actually kind of respect and am incredibly amused by the way he handles the press. You know, it's, it's not, uh, it doesn't make it easy to do your job as a reporter when you are trying to cover that team, uh, but it is. I mean, you you end up kind of la- standing in the back of the room and almost laughing at it because you understand that it is. Uh, it's, it's a demonstration of defiance by him. You know, he he is going to keep it buttoned up, and it's almost a contest to see, particularly at the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl becomes this endurance contest to see if all of the the flashing light bulbs and the hoopla and the the ridiculousness of the NFL's Super Bowl media operation, you know, is going to knock the coaches and the players sort of uh, out of their focus. You know, uh, it's it's almost a contest within a contest at the Super Bowl, and I've just you know I've covered enough of their Super Bowls to have watched that, and and I've been impressed by the fact that. Uh, They tend to keep their minds on their business better than other teams. And um, you have to respect that, even though it doesn't lend itself to a bunch of charming anecdotes.
2: Sally, another question I had for you was about um, Alex Guerrero, um, Tom Brady's you know, alternatively have been described as quack doctor or fitness helper or assistant or whatever you want to call him. Um, did he come up at all in, in your conversation? or and, and what do you think his role in sort of this um, controversy around Brady and, and Belichick, what, what do you think his role in that has been? You know, I didn't bring up Guerrero uh,
4: for the main reason that I'm not that interested in it. I don't actually believe it's a, a big part of the dynamic. I think that's a little bit of a red herring uh, Belichick's pretty progressive about training methods and, uh, he's always looking for something new and cutting edge. And I, I don't think Belichick resists that stuff, uh, on that basis. I think what he resists is special treatment. He's a, he's a complete anti-elitist. He's a, he's d- completely dedicated to maintaining some sense of balance, uh, in the locker room. Uh, he doesn't like stars. I I think he has a real visceral anti-stardom mm-hmm. Uh, response And so the, the Guerrero stuff is less about Guerrero than it is about, I think, uh, making sure Tom Brady behaves like all of the other players in that locker room and is held to the same rules as all of the other players in that locker room. And
0: I think that really speaks to his sort of tunnel vision, his his monomania about what the purpose of running a football team is. And that is to eliminate errors. It is to, to perform at peak level. And it is to approach the game with a sophistication and uh, a recognition of sort of the history and the evolution and the science of the sport. He doesn't have any room, like you say, for celebrity. And I've wondered, especially recently, as Brady has gotten a little kookier um, about his status as a sort of cultural icon, whether that contributes to the, I think, natural – you know, evolution of their relationship and maybe growing apart. You know, Belichick, Brady talks about pliability and all this weird stuff and, you know, poses in fur coats and Belichick comes back to, you know, like you wrote, the core axioms and fundamentals of what it is to play football.
4: I think this is less about Alex Guerrero than it is about managing the entire organism that is the New England Patriots in the way that Bill Belichick thinks is the most efficient a healthy locker room way that is conducive to keeping everyone on the same page and not creating divisions uh, and um, toxic gases in his in his building. Uh, now, you know, obviously, he had some managing to do of that in the offseason because, you know, Gronk, Kowski and Brady were clearly resentful and unhappy. Danny Amendola left on a sour note, uh, because the Belichick wouldn't open the checkbook for him. You know, and then, of course, there's the great Malcolm Butler mystery, which you could argue uh, was very demoralizing uh, in that locker room. You know, if 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 Butler was an incredibly well-liked player that the Patriots felt was somehow ill-treated by Belichick or if they didn't understand what he was doing, um, and so that, to me, is always the bigger question. You know my my main question in that that 15, 20 minutes that I had with Belichick was, do your players understand you? Do you think they understand you? You know, that was the most interesting thing
2: to me. yeah. um, and you also write that players who did leave the Patriots on a sour note, um, you mentioned uh, lawyer malloy and um and Evan Butler, th- they seem to come around on him and end up, you know, speaking, of him with respect and and saying positive things about their time as as a Patriot. Um, did you come across anyone who didn't sort of have that evolution who, um, I mean, I guess if you had found anyone who's still willing to, you know, talk trash about yeah, their former I, I, coach, you would have included it, but I, I would have quoted
4: him. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh,
2: so that was the, inter- I mean, I
4: certainly went looking for them. That's why I called lawyer Malloy. And that's why I called Mike Vrabel. Uh, You know, because they both left under incredibly difficult circumstances and uh, tried to call Wes Welker, wasn't able to reach him. You know, so uh, I was looking for that. And that's why it was so striking that, you know, lawyer Malloy said, look, you know, he really I came to understand it. I didn't understand it at at the time. But three or four years later, we reconciled. And the older and more mature I got, the more I understood, you know, how he operates and why he made the decision he made. And I came to respect it, even though
0: I didn't like it. I think a lot of that gets masked over by the fact that they win. So Lawyer Malloy and Mike Vrabel all have these fond memories and they have these gigantic diamond encrusted baubles that represent their time with the Patriots. You ask players who didn't play for Belichick, who get treated in a similar way. And the feelings or the, the reactions are and the memories are that the NFL sucks, that it is this heartless place that, is, that sucks the fun out of this great sport that we love. And the, the impression that I think players who have never played for New England either is that it's joyless. Does Belichick care about sort of countering that in any way or oh, is totally, it really yeah. reductive to we win?
4: No, it's not reductive till we win. I, you know, I think Belichick does care about that quite a lot. I I don't think he views it as a joyless enterprise. Uh, You know, you hear stories that they actually have quite a lot of fun inside the organization. They're just so tightly buttoned up. They don't tell people about it. They don't particularly talk about it because they're all afraid. I mean, Wes Welker actually had a very funny uh, quote when he got to the Broncos he basically said, you know, I'm still more worried about what Belichick will think about something I might say than I am about anybody in the Broncos organization. You know, it's a real ethos that gets pretty ground into them deeply. You know, so the training camp, Belichick actually uh, whacked a lot of the OTAs and have, I mean, Belichick did a lot of things in the offseason that people haven't particularly written about to try to get his guys rested. And, uh, you know, I don't think he cared that Brady skipped OTAs for the first time in his career. He, uh, he talked quite a lot. I didn't include this in the story, but he talked quite a lot about looking for ways to, uh, ex- you know, get his team more rested in the offseason, understanding that they have played eight seasons worth of games in the last seven years because of their long runs in the playoffs. And, uh, you know, so for instance, like players sh- showed up. Uh, at one point to a workout and Belichick had canceled the workout and they went to, uh, they did like a game day where they played cornhole and all kinds of other silly stuff. And then another day, he, uh, basically they showed up and instead of practicing, they watched films from other eras of football with like leather. Fo- he brought in leather footballs and had a bunch of, uh, vintage film of, uh, you know, yesteryear. I, I mean, love he, that. yeah, he, yeah he, he does little things like that to sort of give him a break. You know, lawyer Malloy actually tells a story about um, uh, Belichick uh, giving up his own hotel room to Malloy uh, at, at one of their first Super Bowls because Malloy was unhappy with his room; it was too small, and he was sort of bitching about, you know, hey man, my you know my hotel room is sucks. And Belichick has him moved to another room, and the next day Belichick says, "How do you like that? How do you like your new room?" And it was a real big, beautiful suite. And lawyer Malloy said, "It's great. I, I love it." And uh, Belichick said, "Good. It was mine." you know (laughs) so he you know he he's 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 capable of spoiling his players in some ways um but but again you come back to that central he's going to spoil he's going to spoil them with a calculated end in mind and uh he's he he one one nfl figure uh, who i won't name basically said look you know he he will use whatever tool is at his disposal right. to basically motivate a player. Um, you know, there is always some end in mind in the way that he deals with his players well and you and, you, and you
0: even and this carries over, I think, into his other conversations. you talk about, you know you you talk to Mike Shanahan and you talk to uh, Mike Shanahan and Jimmy Johnson. And both of them sort of talk about how every time they meet with Belichick, they, you start out thinking it's just like, oh, it's a conversation about football and you realize that there's a purpose here, that there is something specific that Belichick is after because not in, not in a sort of – I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative sense. I just mean that in that he is so focused and driven on the end goal that everything is directed.
4: You know, it's like you or me. So what Belichick does in conversation, football is what he's genuinely most interested in and most absorbed in. And so when he's talking to a Jimmy Johnson or a Mike Shanahan, you know, he's going to pick Jimmy Johnson's brain about his drafts for the NFL, uh, for the Dallas Cowboys, you know, in his Super Bowl years. And, you know, one thing Belichick always says is, you know, I can't keep all of the good players that I might want to keep. You know, I have to make cuts and I have to let go of some talented players. So he's always he's always exploring uh, other coaches uh, methods and thinking on who to keep, who to cut, who to draft, how to make the draft less of less of a crapshoot. So that was one thing Jimmy Johnson said. He he said, you know, he would come down for these fishing trips in Key West and he would start picking my brain about the draft. And I realized that he had actually gone back and studied all of my draft classes before he came down, you know, so it wasn't just an idle fishing trip conversation. He's always got an agenda
0: is what Jimmy Johnson said. Sally Jenkins is a columnist for the Washington post. Her piece football is changing. Bill Belichick doesn't think the keys to winning ever will is on the post's website. You should go read it. Sally. Thank you so much.
2: My pleasure.
0: Let's be honest, America did not have a great week last week, but you know who did? Gritty. In his first week on the planet, the Philadelphia Flyers' new mascot amassed more than 100,000 Twitter followers, appeared on Good Morning America and The Tonight Show, danced at a Phillies game with the Fanatic, legend, and was name-checked by Colin Jost on Saturday Night Live. Let's listen to a little of that. Gritty was actually the first
1: mascot ever based on the crayon drawings of a five-year-old who saw his parents murdered.
0: (laughs) Jason Gay of the Wall Street Journal is here, and he's laughing. Hi, Jason. (laughs) Hi, how are you? Good. Uh, You also cracked wise about Gritty last week in a column. You wrote that with his mop of orange hair, Gritty looks like Satan's armpit.
1: (laughs) Uh, Wow, that was funny. That was good. Jason,
0: are you aware... That you can buy $90 hand-painted Gritty shower shoes on Etsy?
1: No, but I'm glad you made me aware. I'm going to hop right off right now and buy a couple.
0: And the Etsy artist, I think, spoke for all Americans when she wrote, I started off this week hating Gritty. Now I think he's a legend. Before we fight about Gritty's greatness, Jason, why don't you describe Gritty for us in a little more detail than just Satan's armpit?
1: (laughs) Uh, He's red, and he's furry. Actually, he's more sort of like that fire orange uh, of the Philadelphia Flyers team colors. He kind of looks like, uh, you know, peak 1977 Portland Trailblazers Bill Walton struck by radioactive lightning. He's wearing a helmet that looks approximately 40 sizes too small. He's stuffed into a Flyers jersey. And, uh, you know, he just looks like the kind of thing you don't know whether to hug or to kill with fire
2: <laughs> yeah the googly eyes really put it over the top yeah he's got that's, the, it's totally like, that's yeah <laughs>
5: yeah
1: That is 100% true. The googly eyes. And I didn't even, because I just saw the still photography first. Uh, It wasn't until I saw action photos of the gritty that I realized the just real creepiness of the twirling eyes. Yeah, the
0: eyeballs roll around. It's like those little little things that you stick on, you know, you can buy in craft stores that have the little (laughs) black dot in the middle. (laughs) Yeah. He's got the basic mascot features, as you described. He's got the big midsection so he can shake and jiggle. He's got the big feet (laughs) and the big head. He's got the little helmet. He's got four fingers, I noticed. I counted. (laughs) But really, it's his mouth and, as you mentioned, eyes and hair that are terrifying. And I think at the same time, mesmerizing, Laura. What do you think pushed Gritty into viral territory from just run-of-the-mill new stupid mascot
2: (laughs) it's i mean it's really just a genius combination of a few things i do think the eyes are are the number one thing that set him apart from other mascots also the name he's he's clearly like a, you know it's pointing out a sports cliche that everybody's kind of sick of at this point, I think. And then they chose that for this mascot. So I don't know. Maybe if anything comes from Gritty, it will be that people stop using that to describe athletes or or atmosphere or whatever.
1: <laughs> yeah, they, they, they're they owning the cliche. <laughs> uh, I have to say, you know, I think, Stefan, one of the things you said at the top, uh, the, the context is important. That last week was one of the most toxic weeks. Uh, in American political history, and a lot of people were feeling pretty sour about the world, and here bumbles into it this, you know, fire engine orange, uh, crazed-looking mascot who does not speak, so he can't offend anybody, Mm -hmm. Uh, and and everyone just gets, you know, sort of like this, 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 uh, you know, the comic, the national comic relief in what was really a grisly week.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that not to draw too direct a comparison to last week, but as um, Philly native Matthew Cantor wrote in The Guardian, he kind of described Gritty as a sort of Brett Kavanaugh type, (laughs) quote, a nightmarish frat boy who communicates only in bro-friendly gestures, the guy who was loudly present at every college party but had never experienced true friendship. He is toxic masculinity incarnate. I mean, I don't know that that was intentional, but I drew that connection.
1: Did he work his butt off to get into Yale?
2: (laughs) Does he like beer? Did he really?
0: (laughs) Um, So Gritty's kind of an asshole, and the Flyers (laughs) are kind of, you know, Philadelphia, the Broad Street Bullies thing. I mean, it definitely fits the spirit of the franchise, but underlying all of this is... Like an incredible, and as you point out in your piece, Jason, this is really like the epitome. It is going to be like the textbook case of a marketing creation. He is Frankenstein's mascot.
1: Yeah, I mean, with all these mascots, the important thing for adults to realize is that they are, is that they are not for us. They are for children. Uh, you know, sometimes they were just, you know, in the early days, they were just sort of marketing gimmicks. You sort of put them at street fairs and bring them along to mm-hmm. birthday parties and to get kids excited about the team. But now, you know, with the merchandising options, and boy, I mean, you can already see the gritty... Uh, paraphernalia possibilities here. Uh, they are, you know, this they could be these multi-million dollar merchandising ploy here. And the team is very upfront about the fact that this is for kids. I believe Gritty was unveiled at an a event that was just full of children. I don't think that it's intended to please the 52-year-old internet commenter. I think that that's not what Gritty's target audience is.
0: Back to the business side. I mean, this is like... The Athletic did an incredibly long piece about Gritty, explaining Gritty's evolution. I don't know whether to refer to Gritty as a he or an it or a she, you know, or a she maybe. I think Gritty is sort of gender non-conforming, um, but that this really was like the the, the 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 thought that went into creating this mascot and the planning was super extensive. I think like no detail of Gritty's rollout and his design was left unconsidered. I mean, it was the, you know, the design of the mascot, of course. And it was a dude that went to Penn state and was a flyers fan and, and went through like five or six different drawings. But then just the, the rollout part, like the kids thing was deliberate because the, the Twitter reception for Gritty was, was not positive as you would expect because gritty is (laughs) horrifying, but then doing it in front of little kids ensured that, Oh my God, kids love this shit. And then they had like already prepared like a series of still photographs and a whole Twitter campaign and, and gritty got into an immediate beef with the Pittsburgh penguins implying that he was going to kill a penguin so this was all very calculated, and on the one hand, you want your mascot to be organic,
2: and on the other hand,
0: hats off to the Flyers marketing See, department. See, I
2: always assumed that kids were terrified of mascots like this. Oh, I mean, I, I feel I have a four-year-old niece, and I feel like she would just like run screaming in the opposite direction I, if she I, saw it. I coming.
0: knew a girl when she was in elementary school that was that had, well, ran crying like from the American University <laughs> mascot. Like, what is it? It's an eagle. Yeah, Yeah. I
2: mean, I think the, the really cool thing about Gritty and All Mascots is probably you can project whatever you want on it. So, you know, yeah. last week people were comparing him to Brett Kavanaugh and saying that he was like a broy asshole or whatever. But, you know, maybe in happier times he could be like your lovable like uncle or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. So he, could, he, can, he can really be whatever <laughs> you want. He could be one
0: kind of uncle. I don't know, lovable. <laughs> okay. Another kind of uncle. Drunk, uh,
2: maybe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Stefan, are you trying to say that you prefer your mascots to be a little half-assed in their creation? Uh, you seem to be saying that uh, you felt like the over-marketing of this. I believe also gritty shares a little bit of uh, creator DNA with the Philadelphia Fanatic.
0: Yeah, he does. Do I have right? That correct? Yeah. Yeah, oh, Richard did you see does. them uh, dancing sorry. together? Yeah, that's right. I said yeah, that, that in my great. intro. Oh, they yeah. dance nice. together. Yeah, um, and they also gave him a backstory, like a creation story, <laughs> yes, which,
1: which, is which was a little over creepy. I, I, I thought that was just strange. That he was like you know awoken from the ashes of construction at the wells fargo arena
0: <laughs> wait what he was like like living in the in like the, the catacombs underneath yeah, yeah exactly yeah,
1: yeah no it's it, it, very strange uh, but i also feel we're ignoring uh, an essential quality of the creepiness of sports mascots which is the silence Uh, you know, I don't believe there is a mascot and please correct me if I'm wrong A a famous mascot at least that has broken that fourth wall Mm -hmm. and speaks to the audience. Um They're just quiet and I find that to be the strangest thing of all
0: Yeah, the non-talking thing is weird. Like I don't want to hear mr. Met talk at the same time I like to harbor a vision that The mascots have all had their tongues cut out in like some sort of (laughs) ritual (laughs) ceremony At mascot school (laughs) And that's but why, why,
1: why was this just, you know, this, has this dictate come from on high that mascots are not supposed to speak? It's just very strange, you know, especially in a social media era where, you know, communication is critical. You know, the fact that we've just taken the voice away from the mascots is just odd. And, and then well, when teams they, they are speaking for so the
0: mascots. They, they can type, though. Gritty's got but, his own Twitter account, at GrittyNHL. <laughs> Follow him. <laughs> yeah, but Get there him is up to the, there is
2: something weird that the integrity of the mascot relies upon their silence and also not knowing like what human is actually inside this this mascot <laughs> costume. So like, okay, th- this is this was from two weeks ago. It looks like Cosmo the Cougar, BYU's mascot, was doing a flip during a during a football game, and mid flip, his head just like flew off, and it <laughs> oh looked like he like cowered down on the ground and like tried to hide his face and it was <laughs> strangely alarming um, but they very clearly had like some plan where like okay if any if his head pops off or if he comes visible or if any any mascot integrity is compromised in any way like we have to protect the identity of the person side of it so anyhow not that I want that to happen to Gritty, but I feel like that if that was going to happen to any mascot, it would be Gritty. I feel yeah. like it would only go along with, with Gritty's sort of like crazed reputation.
1: <laughs> By the way, does this count for the uh, podcast uh, Philadelphia Flyer Season Preview? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. But I do think that something violent happening to Gritty, like his head falling off, would be appropriate. I mean, the dude was like shooting. He shot a, a, a flyers worker on the ice with a shirt gun. <laughs>
1: yes. Yes. But, but that was a, uh, an accidental shooting based on an aftermarket part. Uh, that was not something that he meant to do. I really? just wanted, you know, clear is that, is that for,
0: for of sure. That wasn't part of his, are <laughs> that, you sure that that wasn't part of the story? <laughs> Cause I think that could be part of the story. Um, <laughs> So I think ultimately, like, I also want to talk a little bit about the reaction to gritty. Like we've talked about how bad a week it was, but we're also conditioned to hate things. And we're so cynical, right? Gritty, you know, you want to just say, look at this bizarro, terrifying thing. And I'm glad that American society came around to gritty so quickly that it recognized that deep down we're all good people and that there's goodness in all of us and in all mascots. And I think that's what Gritty really is going to come to represent. He's going to be a unifier. He's going to bring people together.
2: Wow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, isn't that career story or that arc that you describe in and of itself gritty? It I mean, is. the uh, the mascot, which, uh, you know, begins with hard scrabble, much criticized roots, who eventually becomes beloved by the public at large. I yeah. mean, that's... That's the gritty comeback story that America loves.
0: Yeah, it only took Gritty three days to accomplish it. He's an inspiration (laughs) to us all. (laughs) Jason Gay is the sports columnist, the sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Jason, thank you for this contribution to the annals of journalism.
1: Oh, yeah. Pulitzer time for everybody.
0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. And now it is time for After Balls. Laura, coming out of that uh, inspiring segment about gritty, I think we need to name After Balls this week after some mascot. And there's so many mascots that we can choose from. I'm gonna allow you to choose. I know you have someone in mind.
2: I do. I'm going to take this moment to remember Woolly B, who is the Hagerstown Suns, a minor league baseball team, the Hagerstown Suns mascot. He is a caterpillar. He or maybe she. I don't know.
0: Again. Mascot gender. Right. Very fluid.
2: Um, is also orange, like gritty. Also crazed looking, has the big belly, all the requisites of, of a mascot. Um, unlike Gritty, who has no teeth, Wooly Bee has one fang. Just Ooh. one. It's very, yeah. very strange looking.
0: Wait, wait, wait then. let me back up. So, Wooly Bee had the, the, the stomach thing? Oh, yeah. So it was like a caterpillar that ate something?
2: It must have been. Maybe just a slightly- Do caterpillars
0: eat like mice and then they have the
2: distended belly like (laughs) snakes I don't think they're like snakes, but woolly bee, who knows? Woolly bee could be capable of anything. Um, Anyhow, woolly bee was, I found an article from the Herald-Mail, which is the Hagerstown newspaper from 2001 when woolly bee was first introduced. Um, the quote, the oversized Wooly Bear Caterpillar will make Municipal Stadium its lair. So caterpillars have lairs starting August 12th when the Suns open the 2001 home season against the Greensboro Bats. I thought it was cool, said five-year-old Hannah Knapp. It was fun to see his costume. It's the most you can ask for with, uh, with the mascot. Oh, yeah.
0: I wonder how Hannah Knapp feels about Wooly Bee now. I actually now think Hannah uh... Knapp
2: is the sister of a girl I went to high school with.
0: Well, then you can find out. Yeah, and maybe back. I will ask. Him. Yeah, see if he remembers Willie B. All right, Laura, what's your Willie B?
2: So on Sunday, ESPN aired footage of Johnny Manziel. While there's absolutely no reason to have anything about Manziel on the football field, as he's currently languishing in the CFL in Montreal, ESPN found another way to get him in the broadcast. For some reason, it was a highly contrived and absurd video of him writing a letter of advice to rookie quarterback Baker Mayfield. As my Deadspin colleague Lauren Tyson wrote in a blog post called What the Hell is this ESPN Johnny Manziel segment? The video shows, quote, Manziel agonizing over a pad and paper like he's writing from prison while solemnly intoning cliches over dark reflective music. Okay, here's a clip from this. It's really hard to sort of understand how crazy this is without actually hearing a little bit of it. So here we go.
3: No matter how many people tried to compare us, even before the same team drafted us. We know we are never
0: fully defined by the way we play. The Manziel show, alive
2: and well. Baker Mayfield
0: does it. Or the uniform we wear.
2: Okay, so that is a little clip of of what this was about. How this came to be is unclear. I'm not sure if Manziel's agent set this up or if ESPN reached out to Manziel's camp I'm not sure why ESPN is so eager to be part of the Johnny Manziel redemption tour why they want so much Manziel content Um, And also, I don't know why Johnny Manziel thought he could have anything useful to say to Baker Mayfield. Um, You know, they're completely different people and Baker Mayfield has not struggled in the ways that Johnny Manziel struggled. So that was a bizarre thing that popped up on Sunday's NFL countdown. And so far, no word on if Baker Mayfield has responded.
0: You know what? I hope they preserve the pen and the pad of paper on which Johnny Manziel wrote. His uh, letter to Baker Mayfield. Or maybe Baker Mayfield's got the envelope with the, mm. with the stamp. True. You know, the Getting canceled stamp else. on it. <laughs> Send that to the Hall of Fame.
2: Uh, Stefan, what is your woolly bee?
0: Stretching over four pages, the entry for bullpen is one of the longest in Paul Dixon's indispensable, the Dixon Baseball Dictionary. Dixon gives the words various baseball meanings, the place where relief pitchers warm up, the relief pitching staff of a team, a shorthand for a warm-up session. He threw a bullpen before his next start, or he caught a bullpen. He also explores in depth the fascinating etymology of the word. Bullpen was long used in the United States to mean an enclosure, Dixon writes, for holding cattle or during the Civil War, especially a holding area for prisoners. And it took on a general meaning as a place of confinement using the databases ProQuest and newspapers.com. I found examples from the 19th and early 20th century of bullpen as a place where political operatives rounded up men, crammed them in a room and forced them to vote for their candidates. Back to baseball. Dixon cites an 1877 story in the Cincinnati Inquirer in which the bullpen was an area in foul territory where fans were corralled to watch the game. It's not entirely clear when it came to be used as a place where pitchers warmed up. One popular theory involves the 40-foot-tall, 25-foot-wide Bull Durham tobacco advertising signs that sprung up at ballparks in the early 20th century. Since all games were day games, relief pitchers would warm up in the shade of the signs in the outfield. Another theory holds that Casey Stengel helped start the bullpen because pitchers who weren't pitching would sit in the dugout and shoot the bull, and Stengel couldn't stand all the talking, so he relegated them to a pen in the outfield. But for all of bullpen's history, there is no history in Dixon's history of the word being used as a verb. As a gerund, yes, bullpenning as a synonym for pitching out of the bullpen has been around since at least the 1920s when Washington Senators manager Stanley Bucky Harris decided to pitch Walter Johnson only every fourth day rather than having him throw relief in between starts. The Philadelphia Inquirer wrote, quote, when Stan grabbed the reins bullpenning for Sir Walter was over. I'm going to read one more of these because I love the old-timey sports writing. This is from sports editor Bob Hayes's column Toppo the Morn," in the Orlando Sentinel in 1939. It's about pitchers Carl Hubble and Hal Schumacher of the New York Giants, who were managed by Bill Terry. And that's all important to know because... When you hear the quote, you'll understand, quote, failure of these two aces to regain their form after winter knifing put a crimp in the Terry men, and they are doing a lot of bullpenning and reliefing now. Winter knifing. I guess they had surgery. I hope they had surgery. I mean, as opposed to getting knifed like in an alley. All right. One more. A past participle used from a 1921 story in the Buffalo Evening News, quote, how is a twirler going to keep up a continual combative spirit when he is bullpenned every day and only gets a chance to show once in a week or 10 days? In 1990, Expos manager Buck Rogers said of the Reds, they out bullpenned us. Reds manager Sparky Anderson said that same summer, we bullpened them to death. And then, and here's what I like to think is the aha moment for baseball. In 2010, Joe Madden... Of the Rays, bullpenning team extraordinaire, said of the other team, their bullpen out us. Now, Brian Kenny of the MLB Network is credited with coining the modern sense of bullpenning in 2016 or so, that is using relief pitchers earlier in a game and having a string of them pitch for a short time. But even since then, we're seeing some linguistic evolution. The meaning has been expanded to include starting a relief pitcher, an opener, as we discussed earlier, and playing an entire game with a cast of short stint pitchers. That has in turn led to the official verbification of bullpen. Dave Scheinan of the Washington Post picked up on this lexical shift a couple of months ago, noting the emerging use of two bullpen. And we heard Ben do that. He said, to bullpen is bullpen as a verb loosely defined as to cover the nine innings of a game shine and wrote with a collection of relievers and quasi starters and in doing so blur the lines between the two for lexicographic purposes words improve their chances of getting into the dictionary when they no longer need to be glossed that is to be explained with a definition or to be set off in quotation marks and we're seeing that happen Fast with bullpen, which is very exciting in April, when the Arizona Republic quoted Diamondbacks GM Mike Hazen saying, "If you ever have to bullpen a game for whatever reason, it put bullpen in quotation marks. But just last week, Billy Witz wrote in the New York Times quote before the game, Boone said it was unlikely the Yankees would try to bullpen their way through the wild card playoff. There was no specific explanation in the story or quotation marks around bullpen. I am so psyched about this. I'm finishing up my book on Merriam-Webster. I've alerted my editor there about bullpenning and to bullpen and opener. It's only a matter of time before those get into the dictionary. That's our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Thanks to Laura Wagner of Deadspin for sitting in. Thank you, Laura. Thanks for having me. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, Go to slate.com slash hangup, and you can email us at hangup at slate.com. I'm Stefan Fatsis. Remember Zelmo Beatty. Say a prayer for Gritty, and thanks for listening.